on ABC New South Wales. This is the Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us here this lunchtime for the Country Hour. Coming up today, we'll take a look after Australia signed on to help the globe triple its renewables capacity. But how do you think we overcome the NIMBY factor? We do understand this whole problem of uh, not in our backyard, but we think if we could have a commitment to more community scale, then we won't need quite as much large scale, which has a lot more issues around community acceptance. And I wonder if you've noticed more imported dairy on the supermarket shelves. We're going to take a look at that as well before half past 12. You can always join our conversation here by texting 0467 922 684. Well, Australia has joined forces with more than 100 other countries committing to tripling the renewable energy capacity across the globe by the end of the decade. Do you think we can do it? Do you think we should be doing it? Let me know on 0467 922 684. Narromine farmer Karen Stark certainly backs it. She's the director of the National Renewables in Agriculture Conference and she told our reporter Ondine Slacksmith that more renewables will help modernise regional communities. I think it's fantastic. We, we need ambitious, strong action from government to ensure that we can replace coal-fired power stations and not extend their life um, and also to, you know, bring the benefits that some of these developments can bring to regional communities when they're delivered um, with, with strong, genuine engagement with um, locals and farmers. You mentioned their regional communities. Why is green energy important for rural communities? Well, you know, green energy is very important for all of Australia, um, not just for regional communities, but it's really landholders and and um, regional communities that will be hosting a lot of the new solar and wind storage and new transmission that's needed um, to modernise our grid. So with those developments, um, you can have pretty strong um, increases of economic activity in regional towns, investment, um, there's regional um, community benefits that can happen through money that comes through those types of developments, such as what's happening in the renewable energy zone. Um, But there are some... Issues, obviously, with um, things like prime agricultural land and and um, farmers having to host transmission when they it might, it might not be their first choice <laughs> of what to do with their land. And with this announcement, we're talking here about getting to a target of 82% with renewables in Australia, which some analysts are saying, you know, we're not going to make. Do you think that that 82% is, is achievable? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I think... You know, there needs to be an, an improvement in the speed of um, the planning approvals for these large-scale developments. We need to fix some of the issues around um, transmission infrastructure and farmers um, opposing them, and that means potentially having really meaningful earlier engagement with them about where the location of these transmission lines can go and providing better compensation, I believe, than what they're receiving now so that it really does uh, contribute to farm resilience in those regions. Is there a way we sort of triage those developments then? Well, we, you know, we really need new transmission infrastructure to enable the connection of new solar and wind. Um, our networks are at full capacity pretty much at the moment, so it doesn't enable many new solar and wind developments to join the grid. So really that new transmission infrastructure is a priority, but 
um, engagement hasn't been the best in the past, which has got farmers offside. Um, those transmission businesses have lost trust, but I think a lot of them are trying to do better now. There's increases of payments that are going towards transmission hosts as well. That helps. Um, so once you get the transmission in place, then the solar and wind can, can flow after that. Karen Stark is the Director of Farm Renewable Consulting and a Narromine farmer. She was speaking there with our reporter, Ondine Slacksmith. Down on the south coast, Community Sustainability Alliance says that there is a sweet spot and that it'll be looking towards small and medium-sized projects to help community support for renewables. As we so often hear, there is varying degrees of support, but often it's not in my backyard. Catherine Maxwell is the president of the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance, and she says the way to overcome that is with more community input. As a community energy group that's been working in this space for the last 10 years, and you know we've seen the impacts of global warming pretty harshly on the South Coast of New South Wales, we're delighted, absolutely delighted with the commitment to double Uh, the amount of renewables globally by 2030. It's always a challenging one, though, isn't it, when we talk about renewables? There's a lot of this conversation around, yes, but not in my backyard. How do you think we navigate those sorts of conversations, particularly in in regional rural areas? Well, one of the things that we would like to see is we've seen the government commit to very large-scale wind farms and solar farms. What we'd like to also see is a commitment to support community-scale renewables because community scale renewables driven by the community tends to be smaller in scale, uh, tends to be local so you don't need as many transmission lines and because we're based in the community we make sure that we get that community support. So we do understand this whole problem of uh, not in our backyard but we think if we could have a commitment to more community scale then we won't need quite as much large scale which has a lot more issues around community acceptance. I understand you've done a few projects in the South Coast region. Can you tell me about those you've worked with, um, the likes of the Country Women's Associations, local men's sheds? Yes, we've had a program because of the bushfires and the fact that we had no power and no telecommunications for quite a long time. What we've done is we've partnered with organisations like the CWAs, the men's sheds and the churches to upgrade their facilities to operate with what we call heatwave havens. And what we've done is we've put in a nice big solar array with batteries with a backup gas generator, the worst-case scenarios. We've put in air conditioning, HEPA filters, and what these facilities will do is to enable our more vulnerable members uh, to get out of the dangers of of the heat and the smoke. And also importantly, uh, these facilities can operate in all conditions, even when the grid goes down. And it helps to cut their uh, ongoing costs. So we're keeping these really important regional community organisations viable. And I guess anticipating this heatwave this week as well. Well, we had a heatwave in September, so we had a very early test run. Um, and certainly, yeah, this is, this is the big change for us on the South Coast. I think a lot of us who moved here thought, oh, we'll get away from the impacts of global warming. But in fact, we really are on the front line in terms of bushfire risk and heat waves and sea level rise and all those things. So we're doing our little bit to help as a community organisation. But as I said, you know, we, we think the sweet spot is that medium scale. We haven't been able to achieve it here because we need things like a community power hub to give us the technical and financial support to do the feasibility studies. But we think there's a great untapped potential in all of these local community energy groups right across regional Australia to do what we call practical regional development. 
because by going community scale, we create more local jobs, we keep the money local, and as I said, much less uh, chance of community opposition. Catherine Maxwell, she's the president of the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance. You might have some thoughts on all of that. We'd love to hear them. You can text at any time 0467 922 684 or if you're tuning in on the ABC Listen app today, just hit contact the program. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. It is 13 minutes past 12 and last night the government passed its nature repair bill after reaching a bit of a deal with the Greens. The new laws would allow miners, farmers and other landholders to cash in on nature boosting practices. There are two big changes to the government's original bill with the Greens having expedited the inclusion of a water trigger and taking offsets out of the scheme. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek spoke to Radio National's Hamish MacDonald. This is a really exciting opportunity to see more private and philanthropic investment go into nature repair in a way that prevents greenwashing. So what we'll have is um, landholders like traditional owners, farmers, um, to private landholders more generally, paid to restore and protect nature on their land. And it, it means that, for example, if you're a farmer and you've got remnant rainforest on your land, you can get paid for keeping the feral species and the weeds out of it. If you're a traditional owner in Central Australia, you're doing cultural burning and reintroducing threatened species uh, into your land, you can get paid to do that work. We are really excited about this as an opportunity to bring additional investment into, uh, into nature across Australia. Who will monitor this? Uh, it'll be monitored in the same way that uh, Australian carbon credit uh, carbon credits are. It'll be monitored based on um, it'll have uh, specific um, methodologies in the same way that a carbon credit does. Uh, those methodologies will be recommended to me uh, as the minister, uh, and the um, the uh, same sort of conditions will apply. And we'll make sure that the um, that the methodologies are consistent. It'll the methodology will have, for example, the size of the area that's being um, protected. It'll have the threatened species that are on that land. The clean energy regulator will regulate in the same way that they do with Australian carbon credit units to make sure that there is consistency, transparency, that the projects can be verified, that they will be tracked and that they will be monitored. Mm. But, I mean, you'd be aware, obviously, of the the issues with the carbon credit system. You're responsible for water as well. You would have seen what uh, water trading has done to the market and how open that has been uh, to rorting and, and malfunction maybe is a more generous way of putting it. How certain are you that a system like this can work, given that we're talking about very small scale stuff? Well, I think this is the benefit of the approach we're taking. There were problems with Australian carbon credit units. That's why we got the Chubb review to do a really good review of methodologies to make sure that people are getting what they pay for when they pay for carbon offsets. We'll take the same integrity approach to this market. And you mentioned the water market. In fact, we're investing millions of dollars to bring integrity to the water market as well, because we don't want cowboys operating in the water market. Everything we've done in the carbon market, the water market, and now the nature market is consistently aimed to make sure that we are avoiding greenwashing. Already, how, how are you doing that though? In, well, b- because we'll set up 
methodologies guided by ecologists and scientists, you won't be able to get funding unless you're using an approved methodology. Um, the, uh, the, the methodologies um, will be publicly available. <clears throat> They'll be tracked. The Clean Energy Regulator will have a database where you'll be able to see openly uh, what sort of projects are going on and what sort of methodologies are being used and uh, who is using them. Uh, and, um, you know, if they're, if they're not operating well, we'll see the same sort of cleanup um, opportunities that we saw uh, with the carbon market where we now know, we see that uh, it wasn't being um, appropriately regulated in the past. We've had the Chubb review and we're putting it onto a firm footing now so that people can have every confidence. That's the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek speaking there with Hamish MacDonald. At 17 past 12, you're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. Amelia Bernasconi filling in today and for the next couple of weeks for Michael Condon. A text coming in from M at Dubbo. You two can text at 0467 922 684. M says, how about we stay with coal and gas or nuclear? She says they're natural and renewable doesn't agree with covering productive land with toxic, she says, man-made single-use solar and wind factories. Says that's not caring for our land or our future. And goes back to that point that the structures are made um, with the, uh, the products from coal, gas and oil. And we can't run renewables without those products. So, and thank you for getting in touch with your thoughts today. Always good to open the conversation with you all here on the Country Hour, 0467 922 684, if you'd like to join those conversations. 19 past 12, and let's turn to the cropping sector now with some moisture finally about. There has been a lot of activity when it comes to summer planting. Before the recent rainfall, planting windows for early sown crops were closing pretty fast. In fact, Abares released its forecast yesterday predicting that cotton plantings would be significantly down. So let's step out into northern cropping territory with Lara Webster. She spoke with Gunnedah agronomist Sam Gulliford. We've had probably another you know, three or four weeks now of um, relatively uh, sporadic rain across our area. So the rainfall, again, it's, it's summer dominant. So we've, we've seen storms um, you know, uh, that have been a little bit hit and miss. Uh, in our, our patch, but um, you know, a lot of a lot of guys have now sort of started to see that those those rainfall tallies add up a bit, um, which has really helped um, you know uh, get back to where we we probably wanted to be probably six weeks ago uh, in terms of um, that prep and um, yeah, timeliness of um, you're getting some of this summer crop in the ground. So we we certainly have seen a little bit of summer crop sort of out of the ground early. Uh, we've also uh, got some um, that's obviously being planted currently, and I, I think there will be some guys that probably won't look like putting in, uh, you know, still some, some summer crop, uh, simply because yeah, the moisture profiles haven't been ideal, um, you know, uh, just off the back of the you know, this year's you know, unfortunate um, yeah, chain of events. It's been awfully dry, and um, you know, off the back of some of the uh, the short fallow, uh, you know, uh, yeah, type um, paddocks, um, yeah, the, the profiles haven't been there really to justify. Uh, uh, yeah, getting those summer crops in. So. Well, I was going to ask, we've certainly seen from Abares their forecasting, if we look at cotton, for instance, that, that uh, the cotton area that will be planted will fall and, and that is due to the to the dry conditions in the early planting window. What are you seeing locally in terms of the cotton uh, planting? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, we did have a little window early in the piece, uh, start of September, early October, where we, we had probably a good percentage of what was going to go in, go in. 
Um, as you said, uh, you know, because we've had a, a sort of dry spell, you know, uh, depending on who'd had the start the, you know, the summer storms, that, yeah, some of the area that was likely to go in definitely hasn't. Uh, our, our window, particularly in our area, has definitely shut. So a lot of those guys will either um, and very likely move uh, straight to Sorghum. Um, and I don't know whether there'll be too many that won't do do nothing, but uh, there might even be a handful that uh, that might fellow around to uh, to the winter crop. But yeah, a lot of those guys were pretty likely. Um, if they're not doing it now, they're they're very likely to plant um, yeah, some sorghum probably in the next week or so. That's Sam Gulliford. He's an agronomist based at Gunnedah, speaking there with Lara Webster. And with those cotton plants coming through, of course, each season we see growers turning to the nitrogen. Having enough on hand can certainly take away a few headaches that uh, old Mother Nature can throw into the mix. And again this year, a fertiliser distributor has had to grow its fleet of 24,000 litre nitrogen tankers. With about 300 now on hand across northern New South Wales and the southern Queensland districts. And after global shortages throughout the pandemic, Incitec Pivot's regional sales manager Matt Urquhart says there is plenty about to weather any storm. In this region, it's a Clear biggest seller is nitrogen. So into winter crop, a lot of nitrogen goes out. Uh, then we move into the summer crop, which would be, it, in this case, we're talking cotton. Uh, so we'll move into the um, start of fertilisers come September, October, and then November, December, January, we start to move into uh, nitrogen into cotton. So um, cotton being quite uh, having a large demand for nitrogen. Um, yeah, that's when we're at our busiest. So, yeah, we've been uh, servicing the region for locally uh, for a number of years. As I say, I've been here for 11 years. Um, and, yeah, year in, year out, we're uh, sending nitrogen or in form of liquid nitrogen out to local growers just to support those nitrogen demands in the cotton. Mm, it's always hard to pick as well, Matt, isn't it? With the season, we thought it was dry and then we had those downpours. So planning ahead, you know, what are you anticipating growers will need? How much nitrogen will they need to support this crop through uh, over the next season, do you think? Oh, generally, um, and it depends, varies farm to farm, uh, depending on the, the manager's um, kind of ethos on nitrogen supply to uh, in the cotton but uh, you know generally about three to four hundred kilos of nitrogen per hectare uh, is required for a cotton crop what we'll do here i uh, can't tell you a number um you know we, we've kind of got our growers that'll come back and give us a forecast as to what we do but you know uh with with this extra little bit of rain it could just uh, take off and, and we do considerable volume more than what we're already uh, anticipating it's a tricky one to pick, isn't it? But no. it, it is. It is. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> How long's a piece of string? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But tell me a bit about the the fleet of tanks that you've got. That's been growing over the years. It's sort of like a lease out option, is it? Yeah. So they're uh, they're twenty four thousand litre uh, capacity storage tanks. Uh, they're fertilizer grade, so you can't just go and slap some fertilizer in an average water tank. Mm. <laughs> Eventually, they'll split. So uh, yeah, these are these are specialized tanks uh, that we're able to to hire out to, to growers. Um, so they generally, in cotton, come with a, a seasonal charge uh, along with a delivery fee. So we've got our own um, trailers and, and trucks that cart and deliver these tanks around uh, onto site. And, uh, yeah, we pretty much just get a, a, the grower to give us a map and a bit of a rundown as to where the tanks need to be placed or, or where they'd like the tanks placed. And at our guys go and... and put these tanks in place, ready to be filled and ready to use come application time. 
Yeah. How time critical is that? I mean, when you're getting out with that sort of accuracy, I imagine that, um, yeah, reduces any kind of headaches <laughs> that come up with uh, different weather weather patterns and things? Well, that, that's exactly it. Like uh, earlier on the season when, you know, a lot of people are putting nitrogen down in front of the crop, you know, it's all well and good. You can pick a dry time and get into the paddock. But, uh, you know, as the, as the crop grows and you're irrigating, you can't get onto wet ground. Um, and then that's, you know, not to say that we're not going to get a, a big shower of rain like we have recently that kind of cuts the farm off from any deliveries or, or any movement. So if you've got a storage tank there with, you know, 20 or 1,000 litres of um, liquid nitrogen ready to go for the crop, uh, then, you, you know, you, you've... You're already beaten those those logistical nightmares that are presented in the forms of you know bad weather. Mm. We've spoken in the last couple of years, and COVID was a big factor about fertilizer supply. How are we looking this year? Have you got good stocks on hand already? Are there any global factors that are maybe causing issues at the minute? I know at our plant we do a fair bit of work uh, in the middle of the year to to kind of lock down on supply. Uh, so. You know, we're, we're quite secure with fertilisers. Uh, COVID was an absolute nightmare. Trying to get trucks across borders, uh, you know, being in Moree, where we're only an hour or so south of the border. So a few of our customers are in Queensland. So, yeah, trying to get uh, trucks across the border during COVID was, it was a nightmare. Oh, gosh. Thank God we've moved on from that. That is Matt Urquhart. He is the Regional Sales Manager with Inzatec Pivot based around Moree. At 26 past 12, you're tuned to the Country Hour and love, lovely to get a few texts in from you all today. You can join that as well on 0467 684. Dawn Dubbo has texted in. Uh, I think she's referring to the Tanya Plibersek interview we brought you a few minutes ago. Dawn says, how many times did she say methodology? Good grief, no idea. Floyd, good afternoon to you. Floyd says the pathway to net zero that is sustainable is nuclear. Many claim it's too dear, but Floyd wants to know how much will 82% wind and solar with overcapacity with intermittent generation plus rewiring, how much will that cost the nation? Renewables, Floyd says, are more expensive with all things considered. I'll get to more of your input soon, but thank you for joining the conversation. That number again is 0467922684. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales wonder if you've noticed new dairy brands popping up in the supermarket aisles lately. If you flip them over, you might see that they've been imported from somewhere else, maybe often New Zealand, I've seen a few. Now, price-conscious Aussies are consuming more imported dairy than ever, according to Dairy Australia's quarterly situation and outlook report that was released today, and it could mean a price drop for farmers next year as Australia begins to align with those global markets, as analyst Eliza Redfern explained to our reporter Meg Powell. A big focus of this is the Dairy Farm Monitor report, which has been showing record profitability um, for a lot of dairy farmers over last season. Um, But we're also seeing that there's high farm gate milk prices this season as well. Um, And on the other end of the supply chain, we're also seeing that there's really strong retail revenues as well. So um, all of these factors are are delivering benefits uh, for the industry at the moment. But there's also emerging risks as well that are starting to weigh heavily um, on the outlook too. So whether that's around um, high production costs um, or Australia's price competitiveness within dairy markets um, or even the economic constraints that are on consumers at the moment as well. So something that we've seen again and again over the last few years is the shrinking milk pool as we do these reports. Mm. Is that is that a pattern again this year despite this high profitability? 
Well, this season we've actually seen some moderate growth over the first couple months. Um, so over the spring conditions that we've been seeing this season, it's been quite different, particularly from a weather perspective, um, compared to what we've seen last season. Um, although it's probably worth mentioning that there's been some really um, some large rainfall events in a few regions over the last week or so. But still, with that being said, um, there is still this overarching El Nino event um, that's, that's due to bring those drying conditions across the eastern parts of the country and. And at the same time, we've seen that um, cow culling rates have also reduced quite notably as well. Um, so we've seen some moderate growth in, in production volumes, but keeping in mind, um, you know, the, the impact of El Nino and drier conditions through the second half of the season and, and increased demand for things like supplementary feed and, um, and irrigation water as well, um, that is likely to have some impact. But overall, our forecast at the moment for milk production um, remains steady relative to the volumes that, that we produced last season. Now, something that stood out to me in this report uh, are the numbers around imported products. So mm. you've got in 99, 2000, the year that financial year, uh, imported products accounted for 11% of Australia's dairy consumption, whereas last season 27% of dairy consumed was from overseas. So that's quite an increase. What's going on there? Yeah, well, Australia is becoming a, a much more prominent dairy importer and you know, the, the types of products that Australia is imported from in it, from a dairy perspective um, has, has changed a lot over time. I mean, cheese is still a, a really consistent, um, a consistently large um, uh, product in terms, of, in terms of the market share of the volume that we're bringing in. Um, but the reality is, is in today's market, we're, we're bringing in a whole, a whole variety of different products. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen that those imported volumes increasing, particularly over, over the last season coming in. And, you know, that, that price difference between Australian dairy products compared to the international products um, has, has had a part to play there too. Um, and so, you know, we, we see that a lot of those imported products tend to be more incorporated within that, you know, that ingredient, that food service space. Um, but we know that across many different food categories um, that the major retailers have been increasing that offering of imported products over Several several years, um, of course. So um, there is that you know that increased presence and offering of imported products, and 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 it is putting pressure on on Australian Australian dairy products as well. And we've seen that both you know on on the global stage and also domestically, of course, within our own market. So you know, even though we are Australia, we are still impacted by what is happening globally and and those global factors. I mean, personally, I've seen a, a lot more foreign brands on the supermarket shelves in the cheese section, lots of cheeses from New Zealand, which are notably a fair bit cheaper than Australian products. What does this put pressure on uh, milk prices for next season, Eliza? It's a good question, and and you know as we know, there's a lot that that um, that drives that that milk prices picture, um, but it, but it does have a part to play, um, you know. As I said before, we we are Australia, but we are still impacted by by what's happening globally and, and by global products. So, um, you know, it is putting pressure on on our product values, um, and there is you know some implications for for next season's farm gate milk prices when we get to that point um, halfway through next year. That's Dairy Australia's analyst Eliza Redfern explaining that quarterly situation and outlook for dairy with Meg Powell there. You're listening to The Country Hour, 27 minutes away from one. Thank you for your text. Joe at Mullally asking, why destroy productive farming land with solar panels and wind turbines? 
which Joe says are hardly renewable. They're destined for junk in about 20 years. He's also asking if some worldwide guru can think up an alternative fuel to diesel. Uh, of course, the heavy reliance on diesel to not only grow food, but transport it around the state and the country. Joe, thanks for getting in touch. David Wewar says governments shouldn't pretend that they can change the weather and improve the climate. Dave says the coalition would win four terms, he reckons, if they dropped the net zero plan and ended uh, there are other, some of their other um, projects there, Dave. Thank you. And a hello to Andrew as well this afternoon, who says we have to get away from the idea that power generation is done large scale and in just a few locations. He thinks we should move that distribution model and we won't need as many transmission lines. You can always join this conversation too, 0467 982 Still to come on the Country Hour before one, there's calls for an embargo on the Darling River amid the forecast heatwave. Any opportunity to push some water through that system should not be ignored by our government. And some Christmas cheer heading to the Central West. We'll check in with that convoy before one o'clock. But it is time to get the latest from the newsroom. Cecilia Connell's here. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Amelia. Here's what's making news this hour. Australia's communications regulator says it's lost patience with Telstra and the telco risks being taken to court if it wrongly charges customers again. Telstra has apologised and paid a penalty after the Australian Communications and Media Authority found it had charged more than 6,500 customers an average of $2,600 for inactive internet services over 11 years. A jury has found a Canberra man guilty of murdering a Newcastle grandmother when she answered the front door of her Stockton home. The jury was told Stacey Klimovich was the victim of a targeted and premeditated killing in June 2021 when she was shot in the chest at close range. Australia's economy grew just 0.2% over the three years to September 30 and 2.1% over the past year. That's according to national accounts data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Economists had generally expected the economy to expand by around 0.4% for the quarter and 1.8% over the past year. And in sport, Matilda's coach, Tony Gustafsson, says his team will need to limit the influence of Adriana Leon in this afternoon's soccer friendly against Canada in Vancouver. The Matildas are looking to bounce back after being thrashed 5-0 last Sunday. Mm. And what can I say, Amelia? I know I should remain unbiased, but go the Tillies. <laughs> I think when it comes to sport in Australia, we can be a little biased. <laughs> Cecilia, thank you so much. More news at one. Thank you. Cecilia Connell there. There will be more ABC News at one. If you can't wait, jump online, ABC News or abcrural.com. You don't have to wait to get the weather details, though. Stephen Stefanak is here from the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Amelia. The heat is coming. <laughs> yes, it's it's going. It's sort of arriving already over inland parts of the state and expected to continue right through to the weekend um, heat and into next week as well. So what, what what's happened? We had a subway change which moved up the coast yesterday, brought a bit of a milder change to places like Sydney and central parts of the coast, but the heat remains over the inland. Now, over the coming days, that heat will again encroach back onto coastal parts, and particularly by Saturday, we get these stronger northwesterly winds which are likely to push the heat to coastal parts as well as inland. So we'll continue having this severe heat wave warning that we've currently got out. But then another change on Saturday comes through along coast, gives some relief there, but it doesn't really flush out the heat from the inland. So even into next week, uh, that heat will continue across the inland. And we're talking maximum temperatures anywhere from the mid-30s to mid-40s mid uh, across 
inland parts, possibly reaching coastal parts on Saturday, those temperatures. Wow. What are we seeing in terms of temperatures today, Stephen? Uh, across today, across inland, if we look at um, inland parts of the state, we can expect maximums in the uh, low to mid-40s in the northwest of the state today. Oh, so places like Tibberborough will reach the mid-40s. Uh, even in southern inland parts like the Riverina, you're at least getting sort of maximums up into the mid-30s uh, in that region there. Gosh, I see on the forecast for today two showers and thunderstorms possible this afternoon. Is there much in that? Are they going to be severe or they're just a, a short-term little hit? So, yeah, we're expecting isolated showers and thunderstorms this afternoon across many inland parts of the state. That will continue the trend over the coming days. Not expected to be severe today. But I guess the main story with these showers and thunderstorms is little, if any, rainfall generally expected. Mostly showers and storms will produce less than five or a few millimetres. Um, there is a chance that over the coming days that an isolated storm might produce 10 to 20 metres, not metres, 10 to 20 millimetres. But that, that, that will be very isolated and uh, won't have much bearing on the general, general region mm-hmm. rainfall. Is there any, I know the outlooks are sort of not too far ahead, but is there any talk of rain in the next seven to ten days yet? Is that increasing at all? Yeah, so we get that next change coming through, trough coming through on Saturday, as I mentioned, bringing that change. And we could see some showers, thunderstorms from the inland reaching, reaching the coast. But again, there's not much moisture with it. So similar story, mostly light rainfalls expected with just maybe that isolated heavier fall um, with that. In terms of severity over the, over the coming days, um, as we head into tomorrow and towards the weekend, storms are very high base and they have the potential maybe to produce an isolated damaging wind gust, uh, but nothing like the widespread severe storms that we saw last week. Well, that's good to, good to know, Stephen. Thank you so much for the update today. Always appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you. Stephen Stefanak at the Bureau of Meteorology there. And just a reminder, that heat wave warning is out. Severe heat wave warning for the mid-north coast, Hunter, Northern Tablelands, Illawarra, Central Tablelands, Southern Tablelands, Northwest Slopes and Plains, Central West Slopes and Plains, Southwest Slopes, Riverina, Lower Western and Upper Western Districts. So pretty much the whole state. Keep yourselves and your friends and family cool as well. Heat waves kill more Australians than bushfires, cyclones and floods combined. People most at risk are outdoor workers, babies and the elderly. Check that they're able to stay cool. It's also very important to cool the body at night using water, fans and air conditioning. Health effects can sometimes occur days after the heatwave passes. So if you don't feel well, seek medical help. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. At 20 to 1, and as we were hearing there, with temperatures in the southwest set to hit 40-something degrees this week, a prominent irrigator has raised some concerns that another fish kill could be imminent. Southwest Water Users Association Chair Howard Jones told Elsie Kennedy that he wants the New South Wales government to put an embargo on water being pumped out of the Darling River to allow fresh flows to reach the lower Darling. We're sitting on the knife edge of, of what I think is uh, an imminent fish kill much the same as we've had the previous two times. I believe from what I'm reading with the Water Info page in New South Wales Water is there are a number of streams in the upper reaches, whether it be Queensland or northern New South Wales, that have flows in them. They're only small flows, and I guess most of those would be diverted already into private dams. 
what's left there should be embargoed, uh, which means the minister has the right to close off irrigation access in circumstances that present themselves in relation to the health of a river. It's simply that. So the embargo says what's in that river now, what's flowing in that river now is critical for the river's health and the creatures in it, and irrigation should not be taken. Simple as that. New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson said in a statement in response to your concerns, and I'm quoting here, Unfortunately, a temporary embargo on water take upstream is not recommended, as the additional water would take too long to reach this area. What are your thoughts on that? That's not the way it should be looked at. When you get back into a situation where you've got low flows or no flows, then any any fall of, you know, a thousand, whatever, I saw two and a half thousand, I think, was in the Castle Ray and one of the others, that's got to go somewhere if it's not all into someone's dam. So Rose's uh, position basically is she's quite happy to let that water go to be irrigated with annual crops at the expense of connectivity in the river. The Water Minister also said, and I'm quoting, she is continuing to address recommendations from the Office of the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer. Now, those recommendations were handed down in September after fishicles had happened in March this year. Does that address your concerns at all? But we're faced with a dilemma now. It's, it's not wait two months for the boffins to sit round and come up with a solution. This is a minister's decision, whether it be Rose Jackson or whether it be Penny Sharp, I think they both should be there, uh, saying... Uh, we're in charge, the, the Water Act says what it says, um, and it's, it's time that we uh, observed that and made decisions. And that decision should be to put an embargo on any take until such time as the water quality uh, in the Bowen Darling River uh, down to Menindi, uh, Menindi and down below Menindi to the junction at Wentworth is in a better position to cope with uh, anyone taking any water anywhere. How soon are you worried that we could start to see um, declines in water quality and, and a risk of fish kills? Uh, look, look at the temperature this week. We're moving towards 40 degrees uh, tomorrow, I think, and towards the end of the week. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see them floating to the top by Wednesday. Now, uh, an embargo is not going to fix that straight away, but anything, any opportunity to push some water through that system should not be ignored by our government. And that was Southwest Water Users Association Chairman Howard Jones speaking there with Elsie Kennedy. Now, in a statement, the New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson said, with hot, dry conditions expected to continue, the government knows there is the risk of more fish deaths over the coming weeks and months. She acknowledges that that risk remains high. She said the New South Wales and Commonwealth agencies were monitoring the situation and adjusting releases of good quality water from Lake Pamamaru to prevent hypoxic conditions in the Weirpool, including repeated pulses of up to 1,000 megalitres a day. That statement from the New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson. Thank you for those texts that keep coming in. It's great to hear from you all today. Uh, Greg at Ningen said farmers have basically paid money to do the right, basically being paid money to do the right thing. Uh, touching on the nature repair bill that passed overnight, passed Parliament overnight. Greg says, good to know how to look after biodiversity without being paid to do it, but whatever works. Greg thinks Ms. Plebisek, Minister Plebisek, is on the right track. Keep sending those through. I'll try and get to a few more soon. 0467922684. Mick says to produce the steel, the carbon input produced, the longevity of towers, the maintenance and environment damage, the costs add up and underground cables are a necessity. It's always good to have these conversations with you right here on ABC New South Wales. It is quarter to one. You're tuned to the Country Hour. 
You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Let's hit the road now because two convoys of army vehicles are on their way to the Parks region. Their mission, to deliver 2,000 food hampers to families in need this Christmas. With an update on the journey, we're joined this afternoon by Aaron Cass from the Reverend Bill Cruz Foundation. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you going? Very well. How are you travelling? Yeah, not too bad at all. We've just pulled over at the moment because we had a spot of reception um, and we didn't want to lose you for the interview. (laughs) I thought that might be a case, so I appreciate you um, being organised there, Aaron. Tell us about this trip. How long has it been in the works and why uh, Peak Hill in the Parks region? So we we started packing the hampers at the start of October. So it's been a long time coming for all of this. Um, every year we, we try and get about 2,000 of these hampers out to to one of our... Oh dear, that reception is getting us, Aaron. I don't know if you've put your foot down or if you can stand on one leg again or something to get that service back. We are hearing this afternoon from Aaron Cass from the Rev Bill Cruise Foundation. They've got a bit of a convoy uh, heading to the Central West. Can you hear me still there, Aaron? Oh. Oh, that's not a good sign, is it? Oh, unfortunately, uh, we knew that this might be a problem. They're set to reach Peak Hill about one thirty, two o'clock this afternoon. I know service isn't ideal in that part of the world, but 2,000 food hampers heading that way. Uh, it's wonderful to, to hear this generosity. I know lots of parts of our, our state have seen hay runs in recent times as well. Certainly um, a lot of goodwill getting around pretty festive I think at this time of the year as well. Hello I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Federal Parliament to debate new legislation on immigration detention. Can the government secure changes before the end of the parliamentary year? Global climate talks in Dubai tackle the issue of methane emissions and beetle mania. Are Christmas beetles back? The tiny creatures that signal the festive season in many parts of eastern Australia. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. At 13 minutes to one, and soil and the role it plays in the big climate change debate has been centre stage at the COP28 Global Conference. Storing carbon in the soil is, of course, one way to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. But soil is being still cleared for cropping and urbanisation, and that's releasing more carbon, not storing it, as David Clawton reports. There are a lot of Australians at COP28 as Australia positions itself to host the next big event. And one of them is soil expert Budiman Minister from the University of Sydney. He's optimistic about the potential for soil to store more carbon, but he thinks there's a long way to go before that can be achieved. Agriculture is still a large contribution of uh, greenhouse gas emissions because of uh, either land use change or deforestation or conversion to to uh, cropping and also uh, fertilizer application that uh, so we're not just talking about carbon dioxide but it's also about nitrous oxide that is from the nitrogen fertilizer and also methane that is to do from the livestock and also from the paddy paddy field cultivation Australia is a world leader when it comes to sustainable farming systems, having shifted away from tilling the soil in the last 20 years and set up systems like biodiversity schemes to encourage farmers to protect the environment. But the rest of the world is a long way behind. Yeah, unfortunately, even in Europe, the uptake of uh, no-till is still very low. So they're still talking that uh, they're still encouraging farmers to adopt no-till practices 
So tilling the soil uh, often means that you break up the aggregates, break up the soil, and that expose the soil to more oxidation. And and furthermore, I think it's it's not only the tilling the soil, but if you remove everything and you till the soil, you are exposing the soil more to oxidize or your organic matter decompose faster. So you lose much more carbon in the soil and exposing the soil also means that uh, the stability of your soil is gets weaker. So when it's, there's rainfall, then there's, it, the soil is more prone to erosion. With the alarm bells ringing, Budiman Maniste says agriculture needs to aim for net zero by 2030. We should be uh, thinking of ways to do things better. So, I mean, the, there are options already out there. So it's a matter of scaling up and not doing the the business as usual anymore, but starts thinking about how how we're going to agriculture, even agriculture itself have to reach a net zero pledge to need reach net zero by 2030. The problem is farmers need to produce commercial crops and that often results in crops that produce big yields and farming systems that use a lot of fertilisers and chemicals. That needs to change, according to Budaman Manistay. We can't just look at soils as a medium for for just uh, growing, either for growing crops or medium just for storing carbon because uh, we have to start quantifying. We have to understand that how how soil is, is uh, contributing for the whole ecosystems, including biodiversity, including water, including uh, climate regulations. So, for example, the government is talking about the setting aside 30% of the soil to restore degradation. So we need to look at what are what are the options, what are the functionality of the soils that can that can provide. And I suppose at these big conferences, the urgency of the of the need to do something to address climate change, for example, uh, is very present because that's when they usually release reports telling us that actually we're we've run out of time. You know, that is that the sense you're getting this time around? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's it's been since I think soil has been talked since uh, the Kyoto Protocol, and 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 I think there's a well, there there are progress, but the people are still a bit, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit slow. But I think that uh, now now I think the there's at least there is a there's agreement from this COP twenty eight about the how to make food system, how to, to look at the food system and agriculture more sustainable. There is a, there is a will, but there's still a lack of uh, details of how, how, how or target on how should we achieve this. So I think that uh, countries uh, need to start looking at options and start, uh, start target, like, uh, for example, net zero in agriculture by 2030, which many countries countries are pledge off. I think that's one way of uh, addressing to, to see the urgency that we need to do something now. Back in Australia, some big corporates are working with farmers to help them change their practices to be more sustainable and to reduce emissions. Charles Sturt University is collaborating with six companies, including Kelanova and Pepsi, to form the Cool Soil Initiative. The project lead, Dr Cassandra Schaaf, explained to Tina Quinn what they're trying to do. So the whole idea behind the Cool Soil Initiative is that it actually provides a means of connecting farmers on ground, understanding what they're doing well and how we can support them in doing better, and then through to the corporate players who actually purchase that grain. Basically all companies now are looking to demonstrate that they're sourcing from sustainable farming systems and that they're they're looking to support farmers on ground. A key part of that is around um, 
you know, how do we sustain diversity in our cropping systems? You know, the ability to to grow, you know, a really nice diverse rotation over a number of years. And a key part of that is being able to include legumes in our system. We know legumes have a key role in fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere and they also have a key role in supporting ongoing fertility um, into subsequent crops. It's one small project of many that will be needed across the ag sector if farmers are going to get to net zero anytime soon. David Clawton and Tina Quinn with that report at seven minutes to one. You are listening to the Country Hour and good to hear from lots of you this afternoon. A couple texts coming in. Uh, Greg Thrull asking why do we get this negative response regarding renewable energy? Greg says the story was about small scale community projects. The result from decades of fossil fuel production and the constant misinformation is clear. Greg's asking if anyone remembers the fires that produced their own weather systems. A farmer on bare land thinking that safe, then describing how the air caught fire, the fire trucks that were lifted from the ground and killed those poor firefighters. Greg, thank you for your input today. Ty also asking if listeners advocating for nuclear could send their addresses so that he can send the toxic waste there. Always appreciate all of your views as we open these discussions on the Country Hour. Time to look at the markets. Rob Pierce is at Cowra. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Amelia. Numbers stayed steady for 3,800 lambs. Quality was very good for the short new seasons, and there were mainly trades, an increase in heavyweights, and stores were reduced in supply. Medium and heavy trades were 10 to $15 dearer. 2022 kilos fell from 115 to 125, 22 to 24, 130 to 139, averaging 550 to 560 cents. Heavyweights were 6 to 13 dearer. 24 to 26, 134 to 156, 26 plus 158 to a top of 192, averaging 580 to 605 cents. Still sold from 40 to 92, holding firm. And the balance of the mutton are still to be sold with 1,900 yarded. And this has been Rob Pierce from MLA at Cara. Good on you, Rob. Thank you. Let's head up to Lismore with Doug Robson. There was 1,823 head yarded. That's up by 500. Young cattle made up a large percentage of the yarding and there was 400 cows sold. Quality was good in a strong market. There's only one agent sold so far, with Rysokowina steer slightly dearer. They sold from 230 to 305. There was a few more orders for Wiener heifers this week, and they ranged from 210 to 294. Feeder and yearling steers, they sold from 236 to 300. Yearling heifers, they topped at 296 cents, trade up to 264. A few more bullocks and steers this week. They sold up to 278 cents to be 10 dearer. Grown heifers topped at 264. Very good yarding of cows were 5 to 10 cents cheaper in places. Two score cows, 175 to 206. Three score medium weights average 212. And heavy four score cows, they range from 215 to 236 cents. This is Doug Robson, Lismore. Let's go to David Monk at Carcor. Numbers are up by 2,500 for a yarding of 7,100 lambs. Trade weight lambs and lightweight lambs suitable for the restockers made up the bulk of the yarding with just a few pens of heavyweights. Trade lambs were 7 to 12 dearer with the new season lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilograms, selling from 88 to 147 to average between 550 and 615 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs sold from 68 to 144. The few heavyweight lambs were 10 to 15 dearer, with the new season lambs over 24 kilograms, selling from 170 to 178 to average 625 cents. A couple of pens of trade weight merino lambs sold for 65 and 98. 
Lands to the restockers were firm to 5 Deera, selling from 15 to 95. Hoggets for 5 Deera, selling to 110. There were 5,200 mixed mutton yada with a light and medium weight sheep were firm. Heavyweights were up to $10 Deera. Merino ewes sold from 20 to 88, while crossbred ewes sold from 10 to 90. Merino weathers sold from 40 to 80. This is David Monk of CTLX for MLA. Graham Richards at Yass. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers lifted to 15,200. The quality improved with a much better run of trade than heavy lambs. There were still plenty of stores available. The market sold to stronger trends with Sean new season lambs attracting a premium. The new season stores, the 16 kilos lifted 15, selling to $106 for the Sean lambs. Light trades returning to the paddock reached 117. Trade lambs to 22 kilos range between 95 and 114, averaging 500 cents. The 24 to 26, 10 to 15, better on the fresh lambs, and they range between 126 and 158, averaging 520 to 550. The 26 kilos and heavier, 144 to 192. Old trades, 90 to 124 or 480 to 515 cents. Heavyweights, 120 to 150 or 475, with extra heavies reaching 156. Hoggets topped at 112. Mutton numbers doubled, and prices were firm on the heavyweights, 5 to 6 dearer on the more trade mutton, and 2 to 3 better on the light weights. Medium weights, 31 to 39. Heavy crossbred ewes reached 80 and Merino 66, while young Merino weathers topped at $96. And this has been Graham Richard. And to Mossfowl with David Kent. Good afternoon, Amelia. Numbers remain similar for a total yarding of 1,054 weighed cattle and 33 cows and calves. There were some excellent runs of yearling steers to suit the feeder orders, along with some well-bred yearling heifers returning to the paddock. There was a limited number of trade cattle. Grown cattle were well supplied and there were 107 cows to process. All the usual buyers were operating, selling to a strong market. Prime Verdes reached 338 cents per kilo. Trade yielding steers, price unchanged, 240 to 350. Yielding heifers to process, firm to a few cents better, 200 to 320. Feeder steers over 30 cents dearer, 240 to 330. Heifers to feed lifted 11 to average 261. Yielding heifers to the restockers averaged 270. There was spirited bidding for weaners returning to the paddock. Weaner steers 248 to 314. Heifers 211 to 288. Heavy ground steers considerably dearer, 190 to 285. Ground heifers jumped 16, 220 to 260. Two and three score cows, 140 to 200. Heavy prime cows up to 26 cents dearer, topping at 248 cents per kilo. Cows and calves sold from 850 to $1,200 per unit. This is David Kent at Mossvale for MLA. And that is our look at the markets for this Wednesday. Thanks to all those who shared their thoughts with us on the text line this afternoon. One texter says, uh, just push more water down the Murray. That'll fix the disaster in the Darling. I think a little tongue-in-cheek there. What a joke, they say. Graham in Musselbrook, good to hear from you, Graham. Uh, he says, Australia is a vast country. There's plenty of crown land to use for solar panels and wind turbines over the decades for our transition to renewables. Steve in the Upper Hunters got a few uh, variations on the text uh, on the temperature. Reckons it's 38 degrees in the Upper Hunter right now. I'll be staying in the studio, I think. You have a great afternoon. Stay cool. Uh, check in on your neighbours as well, and I'll catch you tomorrow afternoon from midday. With the latest news now, it's one o'clock. <laughs>